Well, good morning, everyone. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the first chapter of the New Testament book of Romans. It is page 795 in our church, bio, church Bibles. In just a moment or two, we're going to be reading from uh, verse 6. And if you're new, we've been working through Romans verse by verse beginning two weeks ago. So the goal is to, to finish Romans verse by verse with a little bit of uh, other things happening in the life of the church seasonally and things like that. But um, here we are in verse 6. All right, let's hear the word of the Lord, Romans chapter 1. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how I constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times and I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way will be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. And we'll, we'll stop there this morning. Okay, let's, let's pray. Father, our prayer is so simple this morning. Uh, we need mercy and we need grace so that at every turn, all eyes on you, all minds on you as you teach us from this text. And we pray, Father, then that you would win, win the room for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, we've been learning that the gospel tells us the great, that the great burden of having to prove ourselves has ended. And I want you to think that through for a minute. In every relationship, the gospel tells us that the great burden of having to prove ourselves has ended, that, that in Christ we have been liberated without any reservation from all forms of self-reliance, of self-justification, of self-promotion, and inner strife. So the Christians in Rome in, in century number one, and we Christians in Cohasset, in century 21, we can live by the truth as it is in Jesus. And part of that truth is that we do not relate to God any longer by instincts or by feelings or by circumstances or by personal bents or any kind of like esoterical uh, spiritual experience. And certainly we do not relate to God by our own righteousness because we should all be aware that our righteousness can be like idols, but they contribute nothing to God's grace for the reason that the main contribution to our salvation that we make is simply our sin. Therefore, the gospel, which is chapter 1, verse 17, we didn't read it, but you'll see it there if your Bible is open. The gospel, which is a righteousness from God, is the truth that Paul wants the Christians in Rome to tie themselves to. So last time, Paul told us that the gospel has a history. In fact, it has a long history. 
So yes, in the very first chapter of the New Testament epistle of Ephesians, Paul tells us that the gospel was planned by God before there was time, before there was space, before there was anything. However, here he tells us that all of human history, this is wonderful, is bound up with a good and gracious God who is committed to rescue people from their open, continuous rebellion and their secret, continuous rebellion solely through the work of Jesus. That at its root, verse 1b, is the gospel of God. And therefore, the history of the gospel, specifically the history of Jesus Christ, stabilizes not only the validity of the gospel, but, and this is for us, the security and the identity of the believer. Therefore, we said, when Paul feeds the flock, verse 7, who are loved and called by God, he's feeding them Christ. He's feeding them Christ to nurture their faith in Christ that they might continually rest in Christ alone, his finished work and not their work, and keep applying that same grace to all the relationships beginning with God himself. Indeed, in verse 15, he writes, that is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. And loved ones, the you of verse 15 is the you of verse 7, and the you of verse 7 are those loved by God and called to be saints. In other words, they're Christians. Well, how do you like that, right? The gospel is just not the ABCs of Christianity. It's the A to Z to Christianity. So someone would say, well, you know, I thought what you do is you, you get the men, and then you get them saved, and then you go on to other stuff, real, uh, real deep stuff. Paul tells us that we will never grow past the gospel. Every speck of our life, our families, our marriages, our work, our worship, our service, our relationship with God, our Bible is grounded in the gospel. The gospel. Grace, if you would, is the unifying aspect which which binds the totality of the scripture together. Now, does the gospel have life-altering effects? Of course it does. If Christ died for me, it stands to reason that I shouldn't let my body be the devil's playground anymore. So, for example, the Apostle Paul knows that the gospel creates in God's children humility. We'll learn that in chapter 12 of Romans. The gospel promotes and, and, and pushes towards submission. That's Romans 13. Gentleness, quietness, patience, and tolerance. That's what the gospel produces in us in chapters 14 and 50, we'll be told. All the while, self reliant, self righteous, graceless religion produces quarreling competitiveness, condemnation, and division. And if you open your Bible this afternoon and read 1 Corinthians, the whole thing, read some portions of the gospel, read the last part of Galatians 5, all that stuff that I just said will show to be true. Therefore, the work which matters in the gospel is the finished work of Christ alone. And as you think about it, a whole lot of dear saints in Rome at that time They would die for the faith that I just explained to you. They were thrown to the lions in the arena. Their homes were burnt. And they were subject to cruel injustice by the public. And the reason why that was is because they would not let go of the truth that righteous people live by faith in Christ. And Christ, and not Caesar, verse 5b there, he's Lord. He's the ruler. Now how could they do this? The gospel Because the gospel, verse 16, is the power of God. Therefore, they stood like rocks as they faced their persecutors because they were firmly established in the rock, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
As you're thinking about that, no wonder Paul is so meticulous, not only in the opening verses, but through the rest of the gospel. So I hope your Bible is open. Hey, Paul, who is the originator of the gospel? Where did it come from? Answer, verse 1. It's the gospel of God. It came from God. Hey, Paul, question. Where can we find some verification of the gospel? Answer, the Old Testament, verse 2, otherwise known as the Holy Scriptures. Hey, Paul, what is the substance of the gospel? Who's the meat and drink of it? Answer, verse 3, verse 4, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Okay, Paul, what is the scope of the gospel? Who needs the gospel? Answer, verse 5, the whole wide world. I hope your Bible's open. All right, Paul, what is the purpose of the gospel? What a terrific question. Glad you asked it. Answer, verse 5b, obedience that comes from faith. That is that we would work, we would know the only righteousness that God accepts is faith in the righteousness of Jesus. Okay, Paul, last question. You've been super helpful. What is the goal of the gospel? Why do we do it? Answer, verse 5a, the honor of Christ's name in the world. Because God has placed Jesus at the highest place. And Paul's task, the church's task, is to let everyone know this so they can bow to him and belong to him by faith. So you see, that is why we ultimately preach the good news and evangelize or speak the good news. Because we just can't take it when Christ is not glorified. When he isn't seen as he is the most important person in every room, the king of every room. He has the first word. He has the last word and all the words in between on everything. That's Jesus. So last week I read in the New York Times, according to a 2018 Pew poll, that 29% of people in America right now say they believe in astrology. That's more than our members of mainline Protestant churches. Striking we got to get them the good news. we got to tell them that, that, listen, the answer's not in the stars. The answer is in Jesus because he made the stars. All right. Now, in light of all that, Paul, after the introduction of himself and after the introduction of his gospel, he tells his readers in Rome a little bit about themselves. That's important. He's telling them about them. He's telling them who they are, if you like, in Christ. You are Christian. And this is the question of identity. This is what it means to be in Christ or what it means to be a Christian. And we'll take them each in turn. Verse 7, to all in Rome, and to be sure we can extend that beyond that because that's verse 6, isn't it? To all the believers, you see it there as, as verse 6 writes. And beginning in verse 7, Paul gives them this marvelous truth about their privileges. This is part and parcel of your identity. This is what the distinctiveness of what it means to be Christian. The first thing he says to them, you are loved by God. You're like, you are loved by God. This is one of the highest privileges of the good news. You are loved. Okay, what does it mean to be loved by God? It means everything. We are loved by God. And someone will say, but you know, you know, I hear that all the time. It doesn't really do anything for me. We, we have a new joke in our family. So one person is supposed to ask, what are you doing? And the other person is supposed to respond in kind of like a hipster, kind of like chilled, nothing good. So it's like, what are you doing? And we respond, nothing good. <laughs> you don't respond that way to God's love. If all the human love could be put together, 
that would not be a drop in the bucket compared with the ocean of love which God our Father has towards his children. And to be loved by a human is it's amazing. <laughs> to be loved by God, there really isn't any words for it. His love ought to be stunning to us. His love ought to be stunning and light in part because of our daily rebellion towards his rule. Zephaniah 3.17 says that God rejoices over his people with singing. Okay, so I, so I want you to get this picture of your, in your head of, of God rejoicing over his people with singing. And one of the songs that I picked that God was singing was, I'm going to keep on loving you because it's the only thing I want to do. I don't want to sleep. I just want to keep on loving you. And I meant every word I said. When I said that I loved you, I meant that I loved you forever. In God's love, he has obligated himself to us. He put himself in charge of our existence in his love. You know the hymn, the protection of his child and treasure is a charge that on himself he has laid. And God has this incredible capacity to love even the most unlovable person. It's all over scripture, Ephesians 2, 4. Because of his great love, remember, because of God's many-sided love, you can't turn any way and not know that God loves you. God, who's rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ when we were dead in transgressions. 1 John 3, 1. Behold, what manner of love. And the word, or phrase, excuse me, what manner is the Greek word patopon. It has to do with something foreign. So this is not human love. This is, this is way beyond capacity of human love. Behold, see what manner of love the Father has lavished on you that you should be called children of God, and that is what you are. Ephesians 1, 6, it says that through Christ we've been made accepted in the beloved, that God loves us because he loves us in his son Jesus. Romans 5, in the context of the gospel, says the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So we have this right, now listen carefully, for this experiential euphoria, ecstasy, in the awareness of being loved by God. Romans 8, the same context. Nothing will ever separate us from the love of, of God that is in Christ Jesus. I watched <laughs> Wreck-It Ralph 2 last night. And if you watch it to the very end of the movie when they do the post-credit scenes, you know what Wreck-It Ralph was singing? Never going to give you up. Never going to let you down. Never going to run around and desert you. Never going to say goodbye. Never going to tell a lie and hurt you. That is a partial expression, I can't believe I'm quoting from Wreck-It Ralph, of God's love. And so the privileges of good news is that we're loved by God just as we are in all our brokenness and every one of our circumstances and our inability to not get it right all the time. And while we humans cannot be so good at love, not so with God. His love for us is otherworldly, and it's in full measure all the time. That's why, and listen carefully, that's why Christians who are loved by God, they need not be racist. They need not be greedy materialists. They don't have to be addicted to beauty or pleasure or ease or power or filled with all kinds of angst or prone to overwork or kind of be in a continuous state of, of grumpiness. All that is not Christ's love, but the world's power, approval, comfort, and control that we are letting be the real roots of our self-identity. So you see, and I've told you this before, every time, every time in the New Testament, when we read about God's love, it's always tied to the gospel. It's always tied to the cross. 
You can't read about God's love without reading about the cross, meaning you can't read about God's love without either reading or thinking about our sin and God's love in Jesus in spite of it. Okay, so you're here and you have a larger house than most. You have a larger bank than most. You have a better marriage, better family, better job, intellect, body, brain, budget, health than most. We cannot say and we cannot think, eh, God loves me more. No, we, we just say God loves me because of the cross. And if I have more, okay, I'm going to remember the words of Jesus to whom much is given, much is required. So, so you see, we judge circumstances by Jesus' love and not Jesus' love by our circumstances. Christian, you are loved. His love for you is not tied to your behavior. Rather, it is tied to the behavior of Christ. And I thought about this late last night. Oftentimes when we think about morality and the call to be more moral, I suspect most of the time, it's like, well, we've got to love God more. We've got to love God more. Have you ever had this conversation with anyone? Babe, honey, that's whatever your love language is. <laughs> we need to live and decide much, much, much more in light of God's love for us. We are terribly underestimating God's love for us and our living and our learning and, and everything. Have you ever had that conversation with yourself or someone else? We need to loosen up, maybe. Not be so tight. We're loved. Second, we're called. That's number two, verse seven. Called, kletos, invited, summoned by God. And you'll notice in verse six, it's the same word, and it's the same word in the Greek. And Paul's speaking to the Christian Romans, and he's speaking essentially to all Romans. You are also among those, verse 6, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So what's Paul saying here? Well, call refers to the work of God by his Spirit in which he summons or he calls women and men to come to him and receive mercy in Jesus Christ. So the idea of calling is pretty common in the Scripture, Exodus 3, 4, the calling of Moses, 1 Samuel 3, 4, the calling of, of Samuel. John chapter 10, verse 3, the, the shepherd calling the sheep. And this calling here in particular is to the proclamation of the gospel. Let me give you a great example from 2 Thessalonians 2. This is what it says from verse 13 and 14. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth, He called you to this through our gospel. There it is. He called you to this through our gospel. So clearly God personally addresses people, for example, in, in the public proclamation, preaching, or personal conversation, evangelism. And when He does that, He's calling them graciously and patiently to turn to Him and trust in His mercy, which He's provided through Jesus. And of course, we know it's terrible, but everyone who hears this call doesn't say yes to the call. But thank God, and this is enough for now, that those Christians in Rome did. God's call, if you like, was, was effective. Paul continues on about their identity. This is you. you are. You are loved by God. You are called. Called as saints. It's a declarative statement. So it's not like calling us to do something. It's just declaring something about us. Meaning, when you became a Christian, 
you also became a saint. So you became a Christian and you were declared righteous and you became a Christian and you were declared a saint. Well, some of you might say, well, you don't know me very well. Well, I could just easily say, you do not know me very well. I'm not what I should be. But thank God I'm not what I used to be. If you are in Christ, Christian, you're a saint. The word Paul chose, hagios, a holy one. A holy one. By virtue of being loved by God, of being called, converted, you are declared saint. You've been made holy. Listen to Hebrews 10.10. This is what we ended last time with. And by that will, the will of God, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, what does that mean? Well, it does not mean what many people have thought it means. There are no perfect people, not on this side of heaven. I hate that phrase, and you're supposed to be a Christian. Like, I don't know who's qualified to say that. I mean, maybe you push me hard enough in the corner, I'm sure. I said, okay, you're right. This is gospel power, sanctifying you in Christ. Saints are those who have responded by God's call, to God's call, and have been declared holy, and at the same time, headed in the right direction. Hagias, saints, set apart. This may help you. In the Old Testament, lots of things were made, declared, set apart as holy. The holy place, set apart for God. The holy of holies, set apart for God. The tithe, set apart for God. The priest, set apart for God. In other words, all those things were declared holy, not because they were already holy, but God made them holy when he declared them to be holy. It's wonderful. Now, in the New Testament, the holy of holies doesn't exist anywhere. The, the evil, the, the veil, excuse me, has been, has been removed. The holy place is no more. The temple's been destroyed. The tithe isn't anymore. We're, under, we're not under that covenant. But the new covenant says... The saints are, and I'm going to use a metaphor that Peter uses, is stones. And we're, we're little stones making up the new temple, the body of Christ, his church. And all those stones are holy stones. My name's Joe. I hate the joke, sloppy Joe. Or holy Joe. It's terrible. But now I like holy Joe. Because it's kind of true. Declaratively, it's true. Now, of course... In the life of the church, there are weeds in the wheat field. There are fake stones on the wall. Jesus alluded to that. Someone who is externally right, but they just live for appearance only. They're not living for Jesus. They're living for appearance. Final judgment on that belongs to God. You see, that was the mistake of the Pharisees. This is what they did. They saw and declared themselves to be holy and wanted everybody to know about it because they thought or perceived they had great loyalty to the law. That, that was their baseline, their works. So they were feeling really good when they were doing really good. The Christian's baseline of sainthood is loyalty to Christ, faith in Christ. And that just is a brief aside, but it's important. If you were Paul and you're describing holiness to be a saint, as he's doing to the Romans through faith in the cross, and you're a Jew listening to that, faith in the cross of Jesus, faith in Christ, and not in the law, that would drive some of them crazy. You're listening, it might be driving some of you crazy. How can you be good without being good? How? Tell me, how can you be good without being good? 
Here's the answer. Faith in Christ. And that's why we never measure our sainthood, our holiness, our goodness through other people. But a holy God. The former will drive us either to pride or despair or judgmentalism. The latter will drive us to the safe place. It'll drive us to Christ and his cross. Okay, who are you, Christian? You are loved. You are called to be saints. You are, verse 8, blessed. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul uses that introduction. If you've ever got a letter, an email, a text from me, you know that I use that introduction. Because what he wants to do is he wants to pass out God's goodness. It is part, if you would, of the Arianic blessing. It's the highest blessing in the Old Testament that a priest could give. Number six, we do that during our child dedication. The Lord bless you and keep you and so on. That God would be gracious to his people and he would give them peace. And therefore, used by Paul, grace, and we're going to learn this more and more in the letter, is the freeness of God's justification of sinners at great cost to his, to his son. Costly grace, freely given. It's beautiful. And this is just in passing. One important thing for us to look at in these two, two words that where is grace and peace coming from? Well, you can see it in the Bible there. Verse 6, it's coming from, verse, verse 7, excuse me, it's coming from God and it's coming from our Lord Jesus Christ. That's important. But this is also important. The reason why Paul says grace and peace is because he thinks the Romans need grace and peace. Right? Why else would he write that? They need the unmerited favor of God, the kindness to those who don't deserve it, grace, and they need, they need peace. If you think about grace, who doesn't need grace? On your best day, you're not beyond the need of God's grace at Howard Hendricks. On your worst day, you're not beyond the reach of God's grace. Who in this room does not need grace? And if it wasn't for God's grace, there'd be no such thing as a Christian. You hear that? If it wasn't for God's grace, there'd be no such thing as a Christian. Paul wants this church to enjoy every blessing possible. He begins with grace. Grace to you and peace. The war is over. You have peace with God because of Jesus. Peace between Jew and Gentile in Christ is context there in Romans. Peace with ourselves and with others, Christians, as the context should be here in Cohasset. We should have peace with each other because of Jesus. Two weeks ago, I had a nightmare. This is what my wife told me because I don't remember any of it. I was screaming out for help in the middle of the night. Apparently, I had no peace. This is what she told me. She soothed me. I'm sure she was thinking, this is a weirdo. 28 years of this stuff. <laughs> when is it going to end? <laughs> no. she, she said that I, I was soothed, and then I asked her like two minutes later, don't you want to know what the dream was about? And she said, sure. <laughs> and I said, I was, a, I was a kung fu expert. And there were two other kung fu experts fighting me. And I was doing everything I could. They were too strong. And I started losing my breath. That part I remember. <laughs> and so I lost. <laughs> and I started screaming in the middle of the night. <laughs> I didn't have peace that night. Not that way. 
Peace is the byproduct of grace. Peace is the removal of restlessness, of strife, of uncertainty, of uncertainty, of uncertainty. Peace is the opposite of of unhappiness. So in our culture, freedom is the ability to do what you want, and we think that if we can do what we want, then that will bring lasting peace. But it does not bring lasting peace. So here, Paul just lays it down as an unmerited blessing. You understand that? This is all free, Paul would say. It costs God dearly through his son, but this is all free. Grace and peace. No more war with God. No more war with yourself, Christian. You don't have to have a fight with your brothers and sisters. The other day, I was reading through 1 Timothy and got to chapter 6. Paul's speaking about the false teachers. He said they're against sound doctrine. And this is what he said in verse 4, that they have an unhealthy interest in controversies. Quarrels about words that result in envy, cruelty, strife, evil suspicions, and constant friction. If you like, no peace at all. They're always looking for the fight, these false teachers. But the gospel brings with it peace. Peace. Christian, who are you? You are loved by God Almighty. You are called as saints, declared holy as you were summoned by God through the gospel. You are blessed. Grace and peace to you, congregation. And can I ask you, are you at peace with God right now? Are you enjoying peace with God? Do you have a grudge with God? Do you have a grudge with God and you're not meant to have it? Do you have a grudge with other Christians? Jesus would say to you this morning, you just need to lay it down. Just let it go. Peace. You were meant to glorify God and enjoy his grace and peace forever. We were meant for peace. What is the distinctiveness as we leave here and go out after we've gone to the evangelism course? (laughs) Sorry, there's a plug for you, Zach. (laughs) What is the goal? Distinctively different. I don't freak out like the world potentially could freak out. That's grace. That's peace. Number four, you're worldwide. Isn't that great? Verse eight. I thank God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. Maybe a bit of hyperbole there by Paul. Whatever the case is, the church in Rome had been established by the preaching of the gospel. The news got out and uh, Christians are in the capital. Christians are in the capital. The eternal city, that's the, the name of Rome back then. The eternal city has eternal citizens of heaven in her borders. And Paul thanks God. The city had been evangelized. You know, if you think about it, a few months ago we had the same privilege. Remember when our Fantastic Four mission team, they went to, to the Philippines? And remember, we saw the video, we heard the words. They, they know about our faith way over there, and we know about their faith way over here. And we thank God for that. We thank God for that. Number five, you are prayed for. Look at that. You see his prayer in verses 9 and 10? not going to read it, but you see what Paul is telling them, that even though he has not met them personally, verse 9, he's interceding for them relentlessly, continually. That's the apostolic ministry of Paul. That's correct elder and pastoral ministry. So just as a brief aside, your leaders are doing the same for you here. There's not a day which goes by when your elders who serve you and lead you do not pray for you. Hours of prayer in the course of a week, storming the mercy seat on your behalf. It's one clear but secret expression of our care for you and our love for you. So you know that we can't be with you all the time. I can't even stand being with myself all the time. But we are praying for you, often by name, and your people, your your tribe, your family. 
in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, on weekends, on Monday. Verse 9b, like Paul, God is our witness. How your leaders are constantly remembering you in our prayers at all times. And then Paul leaves us with this lovely little lesson on prayer. It's very short. You see it there, verse 10b. God's will, as he tells them in a very humbled and unconfirmed way, that he would like to come to them. Well, what's the lesson? Well, Paul does not presume either to impose his will on God nor claim that he knows God's will in this matter. Instead, he simply submits to God's will. I want to see you in Rome. I want to see you saints in Rome. May God will to make all the arrangements. It's so beautiful, isn't it? It's very clean. It's very neat. It's very smart. Not a lot of baggage with it. It's all on God. It's all on God. I want to see you saints in Rome. May God make the way. All right, this is your identity. You're loved by God. Verse 7a. Called as saints. Verse 6 and 7b. Declared, set apart for God. You are blessed. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You are worldwide. People know about our faith in a lot of other places. Praise God. We thank God for that. You are being prayed for. Prayed for. Non-stop, as it were. Finally, you are needed. Verses 11 and 12. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. Some translations say established. That's going to be important in a second. Verse 12, that is that you and I may mutually encourage by each other's faith. So, so you see this lovely thing here. Paul is expecting to have a partnership with these Romans in ministry and also to benefit from them. So this is with this principle of mutual care. Mutual care is one of the great distinctivenesses of Christianity. It's so beautiful. I need you, but you need me, and you need me, and I need you. It's so humbling. Now, in verse 11, we should know that Paul doesn't have the capacity to, to give spiritual gifts as we understand them, right? The, the work of the Spirit to equip saints for the works of service to build up the local church. That's Romans 12 and, and uh, 1 Corinthians 12. Those gifts are the, the sovereign decision of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Read Ephesians 4.11 and 1 Corinthians 12.11, and that'll help show you that what I'm saying is true. Okay, so what is Paul saying here? Well, this is what I think. I, want, I think he wants to give them a concrete expression, a, a personification of grace. Namely, he wants to show them how good and generous and powerful the concern for human creation God has to, to rescue them and to establish them in the gospel. That's verse 11, to make them strong. So you can see there, it's kind of like an intentional vagueness that he has about this gift or gifts. But what we know from other places, and this is a principle of interpretation, the New Testament makes it very, very clear what makes a believer established or strong. Stay rizzo, that's the word there. What plants us down firmly? What firmly establishes us? What solidifies us? What, what, what gives us ground and deep roots which eliminate vacillation? Here it is. It is the proclamation. It is the instruction. It is the preaching. It is the teaching of the gospel of God, which, verse 15, that's what Paul tells us he's eager to do for them. He wants to establish the church there, and he's going to do it with the gospel. So these unstable are always untaught. It's really important that you understand that. Unstable in the Christian faith, 
always untaught. Well, how do you know that? Just let me read to you a prayer that I actually make it a prayer, but Paul writes it in Romans 16 at the very end. He says, I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you've learned. Keep away from them. Okay, why, Paul? For such people are not serving Jesus, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of of naive people, naive people, untaught, unlearned, untrained, not grounded in the gospel. So they have a loose hold of doctrine and they have a loose hold on Jesus. I need to finish. Those of you who give care to people, ministry care, it's so important that you give them emotional care, right? It's very much needed. But theological care Titus 1.9, encourage others by sound doctrine, the attributes of God, the attributes of Jesus, the work of the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of justification, atonement, adoption. Tell them that. That's what the Bible says will ground them and establish them and make them strong. So Paul says in Acts 20, 32 to the Ephesians, now I commit to you God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up. 1 Peter at the very end of, or excuse me, 2 Peter at the very end, Peter says the same thing, the gospel which can build you up. Nothing else can make us strong. Nothing else can establish us other than the gospel. It's the only way to detect error. It's the only way to grow correctly and straightly. It's the only way to help us from our wondering because as people, we're so prone to wonder. And loved ones, this is where we'll close. Gospel depth takes time. It takes time. You do not gallop through the New Testament. Here, there, a bit, here, there, a bit, here, there. You don't gallop through the New Testament. You walk through it. You walk through it. And that is why, verse 13, Paul wanted to go to Rome to impart to them this gift, to walk them through the gospel. I want to see you to impart, to impart this gift to you. So let's go walking. <laughs> let's go walking. Let's pray. Oh. Father, we, we are so prone to worship ourselves. And when we do that, we find our hearts full of anxiety and sadness and fear and a host of other things. Because ultimately in that, we realize that we cannot save ourselves We can't self-talk our way out of this. But we can gospel talk our way out of this. So thank you for Jesus. If he had not lived a perfect life for us, we could never never have real hope and know real peace and enjoy real righteousness and real love. And we would never have eternal life at all. So we thank you. And please help us Keep, keep pouring out mercy as we learn from the book of Romans. Now to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world. Be glory forever and ever, world without end. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. I'm gonna hang around here if you have a